Thanks for reading, Darren. Well, it is wonderful to have this uh, precious few minutes together as we look at God's truths. Uh, it's a time where we get to be rewired by God, learning to see the world His way. So it's a, it's a very special thing that we're doing right now. And we've been doing uh, that together over the last few weeks as we've gone through this series in John's Gospel, uh, Signs in John. Uh, and they have been wonderful, haven't they, and profound. Uh, and they're called signs in John's Gospel, not miracles. Uh, that's how the, the Gospel refers to them. Because they are signposts. They point, uh, they point to who Jesus is and why he came. Uh, and today is our, our last uh, sermon in the series. We're going to move on to Acts uh, starting next week. Uh, so to kind of wrap up the series, um, it's, a, it's a good place to end. We're going to consider people's response to all of these signs from John chapter 12, all the signs that Jesus did. Uh, and in fact, we encounter a rather difficult teaching, that of God hardening people's hearts. Uh, we learned today that part of the reason people did not respond to God was because he had, in fact, blinded them. And so uh, let's pray as, uh, as we come and we read his word that he would help us to understand it. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to see uh, deep truths in your word and to know that they are good and right, that we might trust and believe in Jesus and have life in his name. Amen. Well, uh, what was the people's response to Jesus's avalanche of proof? He offered um, signs and miracles as evidence that God was working through him, um, ultimately that he was God, and that the blessings and judgments of God would flow through him, would be by him. Uh, and yet, such a stream of evidence, it's not always enough to convince, uh, is it? You know, comparisons can be made to other avalanches of evidence, streams of research. And, uh, you know, it's always interesting to see how, uh, how poorly some comments age as uh, the tide of public opinion shifts as they're affected by evidence. Uh, for example, uh, you know, something like the excuses of the big tobacco companies... Um, you know, I've got a little quote here from Dr. Blackman uh, from 1981. And so he was the director of R&D for British America Tobacco. So a huge tobacco um, director. And he, he said this, Despite a never-ending stream of research on the possible health hazards of smoking, there is no proof of a cause-and-effect relationship between cigarette smoking and the various alleged smoking diseases. Doesn't, doesn't look good now, does it, a, a few years on. And by the 1980s, there already was an avalanche of evidence that smoking was very bad for you. And yet Dr. Blackman says, in my professional opinion, the jury is still out. We can easily uh, imbibe the idea that humans are objective assessors of evidence, uh, but the reality is that, is that we're never really objective. Uh, and the director of R&D at British America Tobacco, well, he was not objective in assessing the evidence. Uh, last year, this company is still going, last year uh, they had a revenue of over $40 billion globally uh, in sales from cigarettes. Isn't that staggering? Still. Uh, as the avalanche of evidence came in, it must have only caused them to dig their heels in further. That's sickening detail. I don't know if you knew that. These, uh, these companies all got shut down in the, in the West and then they've all moved into other parts of the world, especially third world countries. It's quite sickening. Uh, but all the evidence, all the legislation in our country must have only hardened them. And you can only really wonder how the executives justify themselves 
as they sell cigarettes to the world. Well, uh, you know, I, I should say, uh, you know, sometimes people's evidence isn't clear. Sometimes people's evidence, it's, sometimes it's not even worth the paper it's written on. Uh, and yet other times the truth is plain to see. And so we navigate a complex world. Well, into such a complex world, the word became flesh. Jesus came into such a world, uh, came to such people uh, and gave them many signs. Did they believe him? Well, let's turn to our passage, uh, John 12, verse 37. We had it read earlier. Verse 37 says, Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. It's a, it's a simple verse, isn't it? Uh, quite clear. Even though he did many signs right in front of them, they didn't believe in him. Uh, and, and there were there were so many signs, and, and we've read a number of them over the past few weeks. Uh, he did many healings. Uh, he made food out of thin air. He restored life to a dead man. And he did it right in front of them. You know, they ate the food that he miraculously produced. They watched the blind boy growing up on the corner uh, as he would beg week by week reliance on others because he he couldn't see. And now, after Jesus, now, you know, there's the same person and he's commenting on your haircut and saying your clothes don't match and and riding his bike around that same corner. Like, imagine Jesus did these things in front of the people and yet they still did not believe. It it was solid evidence, but it wasn't enough. What a flop. What a flop. After all that, they didn't believe. So did the miracles fail? What was the point of them? Why were the signs done? Why were they recorded? Remember, uh, John says, uh, in summary, at the end of his book, uh, we we read this a few weeks ago, um, he says that all of these things were done and recorded that we might believe. So John 20, verse 30, it's up on screen to save you frantically flicking at the end of the chapter. 20, uh, verse 30 says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. And so the purpose of these signs of the book is so that people do believe. But then why don't they? Why don't people believe uh, the evidence, the signs that Jesus is Lord? Perhaps as we've been going through uh, these various signs in this series, uh, in the book of John, you've found yourself thinking, I wish my friend could have been there uh, and seen this, and then maybe they would have believed. A friend or family member that you have been praying for, I wish they could have seen Jesus and seen these signs that they may have believed. But ultimately, there are lots of reasons people don't believe, uh, and there are many given in Scripture, uh, and a few in today's passage that we'll consider, but in a way they all all boil down to the same thing. Uh, A bit like that tobacco uh, company director, they don't want to believe. They would rather ignore the evidence uh, and keep going as they are than change, than, than turn things around, than repent. It doesn't mean they're not nice people, but it does made, mean that they've made a clear choice about who will be in charge of their lives. Well, let's consider uh, how John describes uh, some of this uh, some of this dynamic of why people didn't believe. Uh, and firstly, we're going to look at uh, how God hardens hearts. Uh, you can follow along on the outline if you find that helpful. Uh, God hardens hearts. And put simply, um, once people reject God, God then hardens their hearts. So they they refuse to believe the signs, the evidence. Uh, So consider our passage, verse 
Uh, 37, we read, it told us that despite the signs, they didn't believe. And then the next verse, 38, says, uh, let's read it, 38. But this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, who said, Lord, who has believed our message? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? This is why they were unable to believe. And so these words were spoken uh, long ago um, to God's prophet Isaiah, or by God's prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah was uh, quite like Jesus. He was sent to tell God's people um, his will, his message. And right at the outset in in the book of Isaiah, God says this to him, uh, the verse that we just read. Uh, right at the outset, it's kind of it's called his commissioning. The prophet's told, you're going to go out, you're going to speak my word, you're going to call people to repent and turn to me, but they're not going to do it. It's quite a job description, isn't it? Your job is to go out and be rejected. I don't know, maybe that's how a telemarketer feels. Uh, you know, your job is to call these people and get rejected. Uh, Jonathan Goldstein, speaking of telemarketers, Jonathan Goldstein, he's now a journalist uh, and an author, but he used to be a telemarketer, and he, he describes what it was like to be constantly rejected, how um, this is kind of all day long, and he said he would start longing for that moment when the, the auto-dialer would call a number and it would kind of click onto an answering machine, and he'd just kind of get this moment of peace in his day. <laughs> but he said that uh, one day, bizarrely, and he said this, this was the logical end of his job, uh, one day the auto-dialer called a number, and is he... It clicked and he heard the voice on the other end of the line and he realized that it was his voice and he'd auto-dialed his own home. And so uh, he says he took a moment and then left himself a nice message. (laughs) Well, uh, I guess maybe Isaiah, God's prophet, could relate. Uh, He was rejected by many, perhaps all. And so why was the message rejected? Uh, You know, was it trying to sell you something you didn't want? Another internet plan? Uh, No, in the case of Isaiah and Jesus, one of the reasons the message is rejected, we are told, is that the hearers had been hardened by God. God had blinded them. And so uh, verse 40 of John chapter 12, it tells us why, saying, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts and be converted, and I would heal them. The language is striking. God says, He's blinded them so they cannot see uh, that he might heal them. Now, of course, before you uh, can be healed, you need to recognize that you're sick. You need your eyes open so you can see your sickness and be healed. But people are blind. They, they have been blinded and so they cannot see their need. Perhaps this doesn't seem fair, uh, but it is uh, happening to people who've already rejected God. Remember, Isaiah is speaking to Israel, and Israel have rejected God thousands of times. You know, all through the Old Testament we read, time after time, God pleads with them. He pleads with them until eventually the time comes for judgment. He says, that's it. It is now too late. Uh, And part of their judgment is that they are blinded and hardened and cannot understand to be healed by God. And this is all, uh, this is essentially the state that our society finds itself in. Uh, All people reject God. They suppress his truth. They crown themselves as rulers of their own lives. They dethrone God in their hearts. And so in turn, God hardens their hearts. Perhaps it sounds harsh or manipulative, maybe robotic. 
Let me uh, give you four brief things to keep in mind as we wrestle with this difficult doctrine of Scripture. The first thing to keep in mind is that um, God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. There are some big words there. I apologize. Um, it's, it's saying God is always in control, uh, and yet people are responsible. Uh, in Scripture, it's never kind of uh, God versus a, a person who's trying to be good. It, it, they're never pitted against each other like that. Both are somehow always true. People are always still responsible for their response to God. They're always accountable. Despite the other perspective that we get in today's passage of God hardening or blinding them. I'm going to see a a good example of that a little later on in verse 43. The second thing to keep in mind is that people choose to reject God and then he uh, condemns them. I've, I've already said that, haven't I? It's just so important to keep this in mind. God's only giving people what they wanted when he hardens them. God's hardening is condemning a guilty person for the life that they sought. They chose this. They wanted that. People reject God. Does that need demonstrating? Uh, you know, this is, I've got a graph here of uh, um, marriages. These are marriages performed by ministers of religion versus civil celebrants. And you can see... It used to be all ministers in 1902 at the start. Uh, 97% of weddings were done by ministers. Uh, and then by 2000, the two lines crossed. And then 2020, uh, 80% of marriages performed by civil celebrants. And, you know, it's reflective of a number of things. But not least, people's rejecting of God. You know, marriage is a, it's a chance to invite God into your life, invite him into the core of your life, and into your most... Uh, in a way, it's the most fundamental human relationship. Uh, and people have this opportunity to invite God in. You know, I, I try to pray with uh, my wife, Nikki, every night because our marriage, is, it's between three people, Nikki and me and God. Uh, and we walk through life together. That's how marriage should work, although in a broken world, for any number of reasons, it's not always that simple, is it? But when it does, it's a privilege. And so, so we thank God and we walk through life with him. But I hope you can see that the bigger point is that, uh, you know, in some way, this is, this is a, a snapshot. 80% of people are going to a civil celebrant uh, rather than a minister. It's an indicator that they're rejecting God, rejecting the opportunity that they had to bring God in, to share their lives with him, and instead looking to define their lives on their own terms. And so the second point I'm trying to make is that people first uh, choose to reject God and then he hardens them. He hardens them to this life of godlessness. Uh, such that it will take his spirit to bring them back. Once they're hardened, it will take his spirit to, to bring them back to life. And we're going to hear some examples of that shortly. Well, the third thing is God's sovereignty here is cause for great hope. See, in saying that God is the, uh, the gatekeeper, is sovereign over who sees and who is blind, well, that actually gives us great confidence. It means we can pray to him, we can petition him to change people, to shine his light. Uh, And we have confidence that he will keep us, that we will not fall away, because he has the power to keep us. Uh, This afternoon in our afternoon service, I'm going to be interviewing uh, Lee Titty uh, from the Carlton Congregation. And she has this wonderful story of how this was her. You know, she had rejected God for many years, uh, turned and turned and turned away. And then uh, later in life, God opened her eyes and she came back. And this this is how God works. He can bring people back to life with his Spirit. And I know there are many here in this room that can testify to that same uh, same thing. Fourthly, uh, finally, ultimately, 
This is all done for God's glory. We're told that somehow it's all for God's glory. Uh, I I want you to leave here with a a clear understanding from Scripture about this teaching, about why some people do and don't believe, uh, and how they end up being able to see God's truth. But I'm not suggesting that we can ever really fully understand these things. We only know what we're shown by God. We can't fully understand, uh, and so we need to look to Scripture, and, and we lament the lost, and we... Uh, proclaim and actively seek him in our own lives and above all else we trust him in all things well there's lots more to say there but um you know if you've got questions chat to your gospel team leaders i think they're starting up this week um, it's a good chance to keep exploring in the, in your groups but returning to our passage uh briefly again in john 12 we're given the other side of the coin uh we see how people reject god uh, in a way uh, that you can see how they're responsible And our passage says something quite striking. It says that many people did believe the signs, believe sort of. Uh, Have a look at verse uh, 42. Verse 42 says, Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so they would not be banned from the synagogue. For they loved praise from men more than praise from God. And so it speaks of many people who saw the signs, they watched Jesus healing, and they thought, you know what, he is the Messiah. Look at that power that he has. This is God's son. And they believed it. Isn't that incredible? But the Jewish leaders who controlled the synagogue uh, had agreed that if someone publicly confessed that Jesus was king, they would be banned from the synagogue. They would effectively become an outcast. They'd be cut off from so much of their culture. They'd be cut off from the synagogue and thus the old way of knowing God. Uh, All they would have would be Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus would become their only hope of salvation. Jesus would become their only security and boast. And verse 43 ends saying that they couldn't go down this road. It It was too much. Why, 43? Because they loved the praise from men more than praise from God. They're shown ultimately to care more about what other people thought, not God. Uh, They tragically miscalculate and love the lesser for immediate comfort rather than the greater for eternal joy. You see how God's sovereign hardening of their hearts, it's never pitted against their own responsibility. We're told uh, that they chose this very clearly. Uh, Somehow both are true. Then on the last judgment day, all will have to give an account for why they did not respond. And in the rest of uh, chapter 12, we won't, uh, we won't look at it, but it records Jesus' reminder that his words, the words that he speaks, are the words everyone will be judged by on the last day, some to judgment, some to eternal life with the Father. Uh, well, to end, uh, how do we respond? What do we do with all this? Uh, as you step back and you hear this teaching, how do we respond? Well, let me give you three very quick Ps to end on. We praise and we thank God. Firstly, first P, we praise. We thank God for his great salvation for opening our lives our eyes for sending jesus Uh, all we can do is praise god and thank him for the mercy he's shown to us second p is we we pray for our family and friends we know that god can open people's eyes change hearts we know god can and does and so we pray we petition our father on behalf of our friends and family we pray knowing uh, god is good and does answer prayers and finally we proclaim we tell jesus uh, we tell of Jesus' words, as John does in his gospel, that people might turn to him. 
See, don't take this idea of hardening the wrong way. Our response to this doctrine of God hardening could be to say, well, there's no point in proclaiming the gospel. Uh, but if that was the case, John uh, would have replaced his entire book, the entire gospel, with maybe just a small post-it note that said, God's hardened your heart, so don't bother reading. But instead, he says, as we read, uh, 20 verse 31, I write this that you might believe. And so, as John does, we proclaim, we tell everyone about the signs of Jesus, of his great salvation offered to all, and we urge them to cry out to our Lord in repentance, asking for forgiveness in Jesus' name, that on the final day, they will be found with him. Let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your mercy and grace shown to us, offered to all in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we ask you to change the hearts of those that we share the gospel with. Please open their eyes and restore them. Lord, give us boldness to proclaim your truths in the face of rejection and hardness. May we be fearless that all might know your great hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.